So we're in our last week of our Revelation series, and it's been a wild ride, hasn't it? We've gone through visions of God's redemption, uh, glances in the rearview mirror as we see prophecies fulfilled, promises of protection amidst horrific persecution, and pictures of judgment meant to bring those who are still trapped in sin to repentance. This week, we look at the final scene where God restores all things, and he does it by uncreating, so to speak, the existing earth through judgments and then recreating the earth to a new Eden, like it was before sin entered the picture. In an effort to look at Revelation, I, you know that I wanted to read through, have us read through every chapter and verse. We're not going to be able to do that because we, do, we have some other things we want to get into next week. So I encourage you to read chapter 17 and 18 on your own. Uh, but I'm going to summarize that piece of the puzzle tonight. It is very similar to what we read last week. It just expounds on that. Uh, so read that on your own, maybe when you get home tonight. And again, tonight we'll focus on um, the rest of the letter. So chapter 17 through 18, in summary, we read about the fall of Babylon, which again is a symbol of worldly wickedness and sin throughout redemptive history. And during the writing of Revelation, certainly they would have had Rome in mind as their Babylon, but certainly that's also changed throughout history as we've seen oppressive governments and other entities that have come against Christians and tried to marginalize and oppress them. So the world and its desire here is, uh, is, is fulfilled. They're able to get what they want, and when you detach yourself from God, you get what that deserves, and the natural fallout of that, just like gravity, life without God is death, very clear cut. The only thing we get without God is death because when the author of life removes his hand, sin gets his way and it brings pain, suffering, and annihilation. So when this worldly system of life without God, symbolically called Babylon, finally and forever is destroyed, there'll be great rejoicing. There'll be great rejoicing when it's finally over. And we read about that in Revelation chapter 19. And we have a lot of reading tonight, and I didn't want Brandon to be mad at me, so I didn't put all of it on slides. There would have been like 400,000 slides. Uh, Or he puts it on slides for me. But yeah, it would have been a lot, and he would have been mad at me for our staff meeting tomorrow morning. So So Revelation 19, go ahead and turn there in your Bible, last book of the Bible, or uh, last icon in your Bible app or on your Bible wheel. Revelation 19, you're going to want to turn there, you'll, you'll get, uh, it'll be hard to focus in because it's a long reading, 19, 1 through 21. All right, let's focus in. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. 
Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of the prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gather together to wage war against the rider of the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the b- birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So Jesus enters the scene here after the final judgment, entering as a hero on a white horse, which is a symbol often in scripture of a victorious king after the battle. And we would be wise to think, pray, fantasize, and fix our eyes on Jesus in his glory. It was C.S. Lewis who said, those Christians who did the most for this world were empowered to do so because they focused on the next world. So Revelation is not primarily a book of charts and maps so we can figure out exactly what's gonna happen. You know what Revelation is primarily? A book of worship to help us make much of Jesus. I honestly think it's the most underutilized book in the entire New Testament. And I think it's the cure to many of the ailments in our society today that make our churches impotent and weak because we think very little of the next world and very much of this one. Those believers who help abolish the slave trade, for instance, were able to do so because they were notorious for fixing their eyes on the second coming and bringing the power and strength and justice of his kingdom here today. We live between two times, don't we? And it's always a struggle to make much of Jesus' return, the day of the Lord. Jesus has been born as a king. We celebrate that during this season. So our kingdom has come. Our king has come. It's a present reality, but our king is also returning, so it's a future hope. That means that our purpose, our primary aim as citizens of the kingdom of God is to experience the consummation of God's kingdom. 
That's what those under the rule of a king do, don't they? They want that king's agenda to be fulfilled. And that's what we read about in Revelation. That is our primary aim. So when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, wasn't that the prayer? May your kingdom come and may your will be done. And let me ask you, what's the only thing that Jesus is armed with here to bring about his kingdom agenda? It says the sword of his mouth. You know what that means? The word of God. We have it, don't we? We have it in this book. And God spoke the word of God, or he spoke creation into existence. God, through Christ, spoke creation into existence. And just as he did that, he will speak his victory, it says here, into existence. He's not going to have to rev up. He's not going to have to flex his muscles. He simply speaks. And this world of sin and oppression and injustice and lust Racism and all the rest, all of it will be ended just from the words of his mouth. Isn't that awesome? This should encourage us because the word of God is powerful. When we think it, speak it, and share it, we are literally speaking victory into our situation. Whether it's fear of sharing our faith, discouragement, temptation, mourning, or whatever, we speak whatever truth is associated to that issue we're going through into our situation, and it literally speaks victory into our life. Also notice here what Jesus' robe is dipped in. It's dipped in blood. You know, we talk about Jesus dying to forgive us of our sins, but more specifically, Jesus died because the punishment for sin is death. And he paid that punishment on our behalf. And so his robe being dipped in blood symbolizes him coming to die for his enemies, of which we are, everyone is, who doesn't know and love Jesus. All of us were at one point before he rescued us from sin. But here, even with the witness of this coming Christ, this risen Christ, this glorified Christ, there are ones who will reject him after all of the opportunities they've received. And we've read about that throughout this book. It really is astounding. They're seeing the risen, they're hearing Jesus talk to them and they still reject him. That means there's no physical proof that is gonna turn anyone to Christ. While apologetics, that is uh, the, study of, uh, the study for the arguments we have regarding the Christian faith, why we can believe it's accurate and true, it's very, apologetics are very, very crucial. But that can't turn someone's heart from sin and hard-heartedness to Jesus. Only the miracle of salvation can. So to turn your back on the cross is not simply saying no thanks to Christianity. It's turning your back on, your, on the escape that God has given us from life without him, which is judgment. You can take away electricity and our cities become dark. You take away water and we cease to exist. You refuse the author of life and the only alternative is eternal death. And we see it crumbling around these people who are around at the end. Next, we see those who died for their faith, the martyrs. And they were vindicated and pictured as reigning with Christ for a thousand years. So let's read about that in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. 
And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured him, them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there are three parts to this section we just read. The first is the binding of Satan in the first three verses. Then verses 4 through 6, the reign of God's holy people. And verses 7 through 10, the release of Satan for one final battle. So I don't want to get too deep into the details and the symbolism here. We just, we don't have time. And honestly, I don't think I would even if we did. Um, But there are four important truths here we need to observe. First, Satan's war is futile. Like we saw in chapter 19, it only takes one word to drop our foe to his knees. One word of God. And that shows us the power of God's word. I mean, we're reading about these legions of demonic forces here. And in Ephesians, we read that Satan is the prince of the air. In other words, he's got a lot of power to bring death and destruction and the oppression that sin brings. But the word of God defeats him. Isn't that awesome? That's why it's so tempting to delight in a million other things other than God's word. Because it's effective. That's why we can always think of a million reasons, can't we, not to get in God's word. You know, I I grab my phone to get into the word and a notification pops up or I grab it and it's not working right and I'm too lazy to grab a paper Bible. And, you know, it's just, there are a million different reasons. It's never easy to jump in, is it? The next truth we find in this section is that God's people are vindicated and glorified. You know, none of us have experienced the suffering that these saints will one day experience in the future. They'll struggle feeling like evil's winning. They might wonder where God is or what he's doing about their pain. But they and we will reign with him in every drop of blood and every tear from our eyes shed on the pathway to obedience will be reckoned with. God will bring justice to all. Number three, God will have final and full victory. He's not indifferent to the the suffering that will be brought here. He's patient now, but he'll one day come back and completely destroy sin and bring victory in life. And lastly here, we see the danger of human will. Number four, even when sinful human beings experience the risen and reigning Christ, they'll still follow Satan when he's given even a small amount of freedom to act. Now, keep in mind, the enemy's given authority. He doesn't take it. Satan's not in control at any point here. It always says, and we've gone over that many, many times, that he was given this many years, or he was given this ability ability to um, use a certain allotment of time 
and demonic forces to bring hell on earth. But God's in control. Because you see, for a thousand years, Satan will be bound. That means he won't be able to interfere with God's kingdom agenda. And it'll be a time of of peace. Now, this might be a literal thousand years, which means this time right now called the church age will end. And Jesus will come back. He will judge for a period of time. Then he will bring in a thousand year reign of peace where Satan will be bound according to this literal view of the millennium, this 1,000-year reign of Christ. He'll be bound, and it'll be perfect peace. But according to that view, there'll still be people on the earth, believe it or not, who don't know Jesus, and they are gonna see the perfect testimony, and yet still, when all's said and done, turn their backs on him. Or it could be figurative. What I mean is some, oh yeah, and then after the 1,000-year reign of Christ, there'll be a period where Satan is released for a short period of time, and God will once again preach the gospel, so to speak, through judgment. And then, we don't know how long that short time will be, but then Jesus will come and bring his forever kingdom, the new earth, uh, tear away the old earth and bring the new earth. It also, though, might be figurative. And what I mean is some interpret the 1,000-year reign to be illustrative of the church age which is the time between Jesus' ascension leading up to his return. Again, this is the period of history we're living in right now. So this isn't a literal thousand years. According to this view, Jesus will return and reign forever after this figurative millennial period that we're in right now. Okay, so it's things will become, we'll see the testimony of Christ gaining strength, gaining more and more strength, and then Jesus will come back. Either way, the same point rings true, and that is, after convincing testimony after convincing testimony, proof after proof of the risen and glorified Christ, there will still be ones who turn their backs on him. We have a deadly spiritual condition that loves independence from God. And without the great physician healing our souls, we will die without him. That's why the gospel has power. You may not know every truth under the sun. You know, you may not have every apologetic memorized for the Christian faith. But if you know the story of Jesus Christ and salvation for sinners, there's power in that story. Don't ever let the enemy convince you for one second that that doesn't have power or that you have to learn a whole bunch more before you share the simple gospel. Learn a whole bunch more. We need to use our minds for sure. Learn a whole bunch more, but share what you got because what you got is more than what you think it is. So let's move on and turn to uh, Revelation 20, verse 11. Revelation 20, verse 11. This is exciting stuff, isn't it, guys? This is amazing. We're, we're going to see this one day. One day. Even after, maybe after our heart stops beating, or maybe we'll be a part of this period of history. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. 
So every person, Christ follower or not, is going to experience the first death, right? Every single person's heart's gonna stop beating. And every human being, Christ follower or not, will be raised after this first death. And they'll either be raised to life with God and his people on the new earth or to eternal death without life, hope, and love. Only pain, destruction, and chaos. So the judgments we've read about through this whole book, they've been pretty rough, haven't they? I mean, think about this for a second. Those judgments, though, through this period, whether it's a literal three and a half years or not, I mean, they're going to be bad, but after each judgment came a respite. There was a period of God where God relented. He gave people time to repent and recover. But in the end, this second death, those who die without Christ and experience the second death will experience these judgments for all of eternity. The message of Christ is that Jesus came to save sinners. We always get that right, but here's where we mess up, from wrath. To save sinners from wrath. Man, church, we gotta get this right. It is all over the Bible, the wrath of God, that Jesus came to save us by taking God's wrath on himself. God took on God's wrath on himself on the cross. This is good news. Because revelation is equal parts joy of being in God's presence forever and then also fear and terror over what happens to those who don't know and love Jesus. And I want to spend the remainder of our time on Revelation 21 through 22. A moment ago, we sang the hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, and it's based on the vision of Christ given through John here of the new Eden, the earth being renewed to what it was meant to be before sin entered in. So we see after the judgment comes this new Eden that will be the home and community of God's people. And the vision of this new Eden is laid out in verses one through eight, and then it's expanded twice. Okay, so more details are provided. So vision of the new Eden, turn to Revelation 21, verse one. Revelation 21, verse one. Here's where it gets extra juicy. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who, practice, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So God will dwell with his people just like he did Adam and Eve in the garden. Isn't that awesome? 
The old order of things that created distance with God because of sin will be wiped away according to this vision. There can only be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, righteousness, and self-control in the presence of our God. And with sin renewed, this will be all we experience for all of eternity. Finally, intimacy renewed. As we continue to read in chapter 21, we see the overall vision of the new Eden expanded again twice. So this is the first one, first expansion of this uh, new Eden vision. Uh, Turn to Revelation 21, verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human instruments, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper in the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, agate, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, onyx, the sixth, ruby, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, turquoise, the eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We see lots of perfect numbers throughout Revelation, but none may be more important than this one. In verse 17, it says, The the wall is 144 cubits thick and that it is a perfect cube. Keep that in mind. It's a perfect cube. And this cube is a significant structure throughout Scripture. And it takes us back to really communicates the whole gospel story. So I want to unpack it and it'll be worth it. When we go back to creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we read of God's people, his place, and his purpose. And that theme unfolds throughout scripture. In the beginning, Adam and Eve had unhindered fellowship with God in a place, in Eden. In Genesis 1 through 2, we see that they had unhindered intimacy with God. The people were Adam and Eve and then their descendants. 
And the purpose of God's kingdom, every kingdom has a purpose, was to be fruitful and multiply. So spread, spread God's glory throughout the world by multiplying his image through procreation in Genesis 1, 28 through 29. Then we read of the fall of man through our choice to sin in Genesis 3. Now our king brings judgment and mercy. Judgment in that he promises death as a consequence of sin, but guess what? Adam and Eve are still breathing at the end of Genesis chapter 3. I'm sure they thought God was just going to kill them right there. And then God also covers over the shame of their sin through sacrificing an animal instead of killing them in their shame. Now the place of God is, or the place for God's people is disrupted fellowship, both with God, with other people, and creation itself, the environment. And we all, as human beings, are in this place where naturally we're born with a heart that hates God and is given to self-righteousness and self-indulgence. We see this as the story continues through Genesis, through the flood and through the fall of Babylon. The glory of God is marred in every human being and will die as a consequence. And the story seems pretty dark at this point. Then in Genesis 12, we're introduced to the patriarchs, starting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, where God promises, guess what? Again, a people, that there'll be many descendants, like the stars of the sky, like the sand on the seashore, people who love God. He promises Abraham a, a people that will come out of him. And then a place, which will be the promised land, and a purpose to be a conduit of God's blessing to the nations. You see that in Genesis 12, 12 15, 18, and 22. Then we see God's people oppressed in Egypt as a consequence for their sin. And God raises up new leaders, ones through whom the promise of God would continue. We see God full of mercy and wrath once more in Exodus. Wrath through the plagues and Pharaoh and mercy through hearing God's people and providing an escape through the parting of the Red Sea. And from Exodus, Exodus all the way through 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see the people, that is, the Israelites, God's people, mainly the Israelites. And we see a place, now the tabernacle. This is a portable structure where God dwells among his people as they wander as desert nomads. Over 50 times in this section, we read God saying, they will know that I'm God and I will make myself known to them. And he does this primarily through the fellowship that they're able to have with him through the tabernacle. And within this tabernacle, there was a room described in Exodus 25 as a perfect cube. It was in this room where God would descend to meet with his people in a cloud. And the high priest was the only one who could, could, could uh, go into this place called the Holy of Holies. And just once a year, the day was called the Day of Atonement. And the purpose here at this point in history was to demonstrate God's glory through trusting in his promises which primarily happened through prescribed worship, uh, worshiping uh, through the tabernacle. Then as God's people always do, they fell back into rebellion. They ask for a human king. And as you continue on into Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, you read of kings like Solomon, Saul, and David, and they too receive blessings and judgments for the way that they uh, obediently followed God in some ways and led his people closer to God and at other times led God's people away from him. And we see this as a foreshadowing of his, of his promise to send a better king, King Jesus. So at this point, God's people are marked by being under God's king, 
uh, the place was now the temple in this part of history. And the temple was a more permanent structure, but it functioned much the way the, the, much in the same way the tabernacle did as a physical place where God's glory dwelled among his people. It was a grace. And again, the Holy of Holies contained this cube-like structure that was very clearly prescribed by God, a perfect square where God's glory dwelled. The purpose in this time was for God's people to know and fear him through worshiping uh, primarily at his temple and through a life of obedience that that temple worship represented, or worship at the temple, I should say, represented. But once again, God's people went their own way, and this kingdom split. There was a civil war between the north and the south, and eventually all were lost, including the temple. Because of sin and rebellion, God allowed the Israelites to be taken by their enemies. So once again, they lived in exile. And you can read about this divided monarchy, this civil war in 1 Kings 12, 1 Kings 12 through 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles 10 through Esther. Then the prophecy that a king is coming who is the everlasting father and prince of peace finds another prediction from Malachi, who is the last of the prophets, who said, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to you. Then there are 400 years of silence. You know, when God says suddenly, it's never our suddenly. In Revelation, it says Jesus is coming soon. It doesn't seem very soon to me. It probably doesn't seem soon to you, but in God's kingdom, one day, it's like a thousand years. And here, he says, your king is coming soon, and it's 400 years. Then we read of this great king's ministry in the gospels, Matthew through John. Here, we find God's promises laid out where Jesus is the fulfillment of the judges, the prophets, the kings, and the priests. He is the greatest fulfillment and the final fulfillment of all those. So then during this, this period of Jesus' ministry, God's people were those who followed and believed in Jesus. The place where God's glory dwelt among his people was now in Jesus. Jesus, it says in John 1, dwelt among his people. Literally, that word means he tabernacled among his people. So in John chapter 2, it says that Jesus is the temple. He was now among his people. And the purpose in God's kingdom during this period was God glorifies himself by rescuing us from sin through Jesus. Then Jesus leaves physically. He ascends to glory, uh, but he leaves us the promised Holy Spirit to dwell among us spiritually. And that leads to our current age, where we are right now. And as a people, we're ones who follow and love Jesus of every tribe, tongue, and nation. We have a place that is the body of Christ, the church. That's people who love God throughout the world, throughout history. And our personal bodies also have the indwelling Holy Spirit. It says in 1 Corinthians 6 that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And we read about this part of, of God's story in Acts through Jude. Okay, so we, the purpose now is we are tabernacles. In other words, we hold the presence of God as a body, the church and his individuals, and we take it to the nations so that God's glory may, may rest and dwell among all people throughout the whole world. 
So we've gone from God dwelling with his people without disruption to disrupted fellowship to tabernacling among his people in this cube-shaped place of worship called the Holy of Holies to dwelling among his people in the flesh through Christ to now dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit. And as we look forward in Revelation 21 to that future day when God's final blessing and judgment comes, we see God speaking for the first time in Revelation 21.6. He hasn't spoken for a while and he speaks again. He spoke earlier on in the book. But he says he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. For those who revere him, he says they will be filled with inexpressible joy. Verse six, he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. So he gives salvation. He gives joy. To those who endure to the end, to those who are his true true children, it says in verse seven, those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Let me be very clear, guys. There will be pretenders in the church during this period of history. And there have always been pretenders in the church. That is who say they know and love Jesus, but they are not persevering. Jesus has always been far from their hearts. There's always been dust collected on their Bible. And they don't give a fig about God's coming kingdom or the lost. Now, we all have periods where we struggle with everything I just mentioned. But just because you call yourself a Christian and you go to a place on Sunday nights called a church does not mean you are in the body of Christ necessarily or that the Holy Spirit is indwelling you because the constant message of revelation is you have to endure to the end, even if you're called to give your life. We don't share that when we share the gospel, do we? But maybe we should. (laughs) Maybe we should because it's certainly part of the message from beginning to end. But to those who remain hard-hearted, it says this in verse eight, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So this description of sins that we read about here has been used throughout the book to describe the fallen state of humanity, those who want to live their lives without God. But this first one's interesting. The list begins with cowardly. Hell exemplifies God's eternal judgment on the cowardly, those who have turned from Christ to the world. And the call is to come drink from the water of Christ while there's still time and become part of his place, that is, the church. Because we don't want anybody to miss the future fulfillment of God's promise that all others we've discussed so far have shadowed. And that's this. During this period that Revelation 21 depicts, the people of God are those who dwell with God in the new Eden. The place is the new earth, this new Eden. It says in verse 20, in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And I wanted to read this verse once again. In verse four, it says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. We're gonna see his face and he's gonna dwell among us. 
And you might have missed the description of this new earth that God will bring down when the old earth is torn aside in verse 16. It says, the city was laid out like a what? A square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long, a perfect cube. God's glory will be among us. There'll be no separation. And it says there'll be no need for a temple. There'll be no special place that only the elite go to to worship God, the spiritually elite. But we'll all be priests in his kingdom and we'll reign with him forever. Isn't this awesome? Isn't this great news? Now, when we talk about this perfect place, don't think golf courses and mansions. Okay, I hate that. If you're ever talking about heaven with me, I don't want to hear about how there's going to be a skating ring with your name on it because you love to skate or something like that. It's not going to be like that. When John talks of mansions, when he writes that word mansions to describe what will be on the new earth, that, that word actually means it doesn't mean mansions as much as it means dwelling place. And the more current translations, I think, get that right. So it's the dwelling place of God. And plus, you think something as temporal as a golf course or a skating ring or an arcade or whatever can hold a candle to the glory of God, that's all going to turn to dust. All that stuff's going to seem like garbage compared to the glory of God. Heaven is not about our luxuries and comfort. It's about the fact that the one that even the angels fall down on their faces, these angels that we see through scripture are mistaken for, like, for God by man, fall down on their face. We're gonna be worshiping this God. We see this new place described as no more tears or pain, sorrow or sickness, and that's because death is being replaced by life. And the purpose as his people on the new earth, the new Eden is just going to be to enjoy him forever. Man. And guess what? That's our purpose now too, isn't it? There's so much to celebrate here. Jesus came to bring a kingdom of joy. We read about just a few moments ago this great wedding feast we're going to have. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' first wedding was to turn water into wine at a wedding, a whole lot of wine. And it seems wasteful until you get to know Jesus and his word, that he is about bringing a kingdom of joy. And this, this final consummation of his kingdom will also be a great wedding. Man, we want everybody to be invited, don't we? And that's part of what it means to get ready. As we anticipate Christmas, we practice this worship of waiting. And waiting can be glorious when we tell others about it, can't it? Just any of you who've had kids in your life and they have, you know, advent calendars or whatever with little chocolates in it or, whatever, or elf on the shelf in the morning or, you know, any of that stuff. They're excited about telling others about what they're experiencing in this season of waiting. And as we tell others about the coming kingdom, the kingdom that has come and is yet to come, man, that it fills us with excitement. We're closer now than we've ever been to the great wedding and the new Eden and we'll be with him. So turn with me to Revelation 22. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb of God down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. 
No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will be no need for light or a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. John and the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord God who inspires the prophet sent his angel to show his servant the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they've done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murders, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wish, wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears these words of prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Do you notice verse two? It speaks of the tree of life. He's gonna renew all things. That choice that bring, brings sin will now be in the presence of God forever. Sin will no longer have power and Jesus will, run, will reign. See verse seven, Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. There's blessing for reading and understanding and applying this book. When we're invited to a wedding, we get ready, don't we? we? We pick out nice clothes, preparations are made, we plan it out well in advance. And one of the main messages of Revelation is this, share Christ no matter what with whoever will listen. These people were called to share Christ even with those who were persecuting and killing them. They weren't just encouraged to, they were commanded to time and time again. Share without fear. A focus on future glory moves us to worship the Lord by sharing him with others that they might receive future glory and be invited to this celebration. Verse 17 says, the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come, the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. We get ready by remembering this vision of the new Eden when we worship. We worship with eternity in our minds, on our hearts, and on our tongues. We have to read this stuff till our heart grows hot because it seems fantastical to us, doesn't it? We have to ask the Lord to build our faith and actually believe not only in our minds, I know most of us believe that in our hearts, but that he is coming back and that all of this is gonna happen. As right as rain, all of it's gonna happen. 
Finally, pray and long for his return. Verse 20 says, he who testifies these things, yes, I'm coming soon, amen, come Lord Jesus. The, the, the longing for the believer must be above all else to be with him forever. We're reading here about our eternal home and these last words in our canon of scripture are just the foreword. They're just the introduction. Chapter one doesn't start till the new Eden is established. And this story will continue on through all eternity. When we read this book, it makes our lives seem small but significant, doesn't it? And it makes Jesus seem large and in control of all things. It makes our sin and struggles, as Kimball mentioned during worship, seem small and easily defeatable. When we make revelation part of our spiritual food, we make much of God and little of man. And we swim in the face of our culture that makes much of man and little of God. So this Christmas season, let's remember what that baby came back to do. In Jesus' name, amen.